turn with me in your Bibles this morning as we continue our way through the book of Matthew. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is asking his disciples who they say he is. So look with me, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock, this Petria, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound or shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed or shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, God, that your spirit saw fit to move in the heart and the mind and to work through the hand and the personality of Matthew to record this great confession that the apostle Peter makes and further, Lord, to record for us the incredibly important teaching that Christ offers us about both the kingdom and the church. And we pray, Father, as we look forward to that coming kingdom, that kingdom when it arrives in all its fullness, the reign of your Son, that we would understand our relationship to it and how it matters here and now within the gathering of your people, the church. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes this morning through your spirit to see the difference between the church and the kingdom, to see how the church relates to the kingdom. Ultimately, Father, we pray you would open our eyes to see the magnificence and beauty of the king who rules that kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to bring every heart into submission, that you would bring every tongue into confession, that you would bring every person into a personal relationship with him as their Savior and their King. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Today, today is July 12th, which means if you're keeping count, and most of you probably are not, but I am, if you're keeping count, I have exactly one month and two days until August 14th, in which my wife and I will proudly submit our papers to Immigration Canada to become full-fledged citizens of the great country of Canada. We've been here seven years now. Thank you. We've been here seven years now, and uh, there's this really complicated formula, which they've changed on us twice during our time here. Um, 
There's this formula for how many days you have to live in country and all of this sort of thing before you can actually apply. But we have actually satisfied the most recent version of this formula. Uh, we will have satisfied it August 14th, and we will apply, we'll submit our paperwork. To become a citizen of Canada, there are a couple of things that you have to, you have to be aware of. You know, not just anybody can come to Canada and be a Canadian. There are some basic requirements, and some of them are fairly rudimentary. Some of them are very important. Uh, they, they require that you be capable of uh, correctly identifying and recognizing the flag of Canada. They want you to know what it, what it looks like. It, you know, the symbol is important to the country. They want you to be able to speak one of its two languages fluently, whether it be French or English. They, they do want you to have a mastery of the language. They want you to know some of its history. They want you to know some of the story of Canada, how this country came to be, how this nation was formed, to try to identify sort of the, the way that this country came about so that you have a shared experience with other Canadians, that you can identify with those stories, that you can relate, that you can be a part of this nation and how it came to be. So story is important. Most important, they want you to understand its, its mode or its method of governance, how uh, various leaders are elected to their positions, how they go about uh, enacting law, legislation, and things of this nature. And probably the most crucial thing that they're seeking for from you in order for you to become a Canadian citizen is an oath on your part, a commitment on your part, that you will live under the government under its rule and abide by its law. In other words, you can't say to them, my plan is to be a terrorist and to actively work against the government of Canada and still immigrate to Canada. They tend to, they tend to frown on those things. Now, most of you guys know that the Levi's are trying to move to the States, and uh, we, we found out recently that uh, Patty was cleared by Homeland Security. They determined that she was not a terrorist. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you know my love for the Levi's, and so I may or may not have written a letter to Homeland Security, just inviting them to reconsider their position <laughs> on that. To be a part of the country, to be a part of whether you're going to the States or whether you're coming to Canada, the basic idea is that you... you identify with the way that the country works. You celebrate its freedoms, that you like the way that its laws are passed, that you want to become a subject or a citizen of that country. Now, Jesus, in this passage, talking to Peter, he asks him a question. Who do you say I am? Talking to all the apostles. And when Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ the king. Jesus immediately introduces us from that confession to two things which are critical. The church and the nature of the church and its relationship to the kingdom. To come under Christ's rule, to be a Christian, to have Jesus as your king, will automatically make you a part of a kingdom. It will automatically make you a part of a group of people who voluntarily submit to Christ. And that's what Jesus is driving home here in this passage. There is no separation from having Jesus as your Savior and having the church as your family and having the kingdom as your one-day 
coming national home. Look with me. In verse 13, Jesus, he, they come to the, des- the district of, oh goodness, they come to the district of Caesarea Philippi, and of course he asks them the question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they respond, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? See, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To correctly identify the king requires ultimately that God works in your heart to bring an awareness about this. We talked about this at great length last week. We discussed it. One of the questions was posed, if it is on the initiative of the Father to reveal to us who Jesus is, then how is it possible for people to get saved? It sounds almost as though it's an arbitrary sort of thing. God is electing, he is choosing, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you can be saved, you're cool, I like you, not you, not so much you. How is it possible for people to come into the kingdom if, in large measure, it requires the work of God in their lives? Just to follow up to that question, I would pose to you another question. How is it possible for you to go to sleep? If you stop to think about it, none of us can immediately, instantly snap our fingers and just go to sleep. If you think about it, when you lay down to go to bed at night, you cannot just automatically turn yourself off. You don't just flip a switch. You don't automatically just go to sleep. What you have to do is you have to position yourself in such a way that sleep will come to you. That's why they refer to it as falling asleep. It's something you fall into. But to get ready for sleep, you have to position yourself. In other words, if you're up jogging out at the track, you're not going to fall asleep because you're engaged in physical activity. I'm not sure what your bedtime routine is. Mine consists of brushing my teeth, getting my jammies on, and then laying in my bed, closing my eyes, slowing my breathing, relaxing my muscles, and just not thinking about anything. Not, you know, if your mind is racing, that'll also keep you awake. And in time, and if you stop to think of it, none of us really knows exactly when it happens. It just happens. Once you position yourself for sleep, once you posture yourself to fall asleep, sooner or later, without your knowing it, you fall into sleep. And it's the same with becoming a Christian. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, don't, don't flip there, just listen. God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. When Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, when he correctly identifies who Jesus is, Jesus says that's because God revealed it to you. But let's not forget that Peter postured himself in such a way as to receive the revelation of God. He followed Jesus, paid attention to what he taught. He was committed to him. He was humble, more or less. This is Peter we're talking about. But he postured himself in such a way that there was a moment in which at God's initiation, he flicked a light switch And Peter saw Jesus for who he is. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 16. He goes on in verse 17. My Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And then we come to this next verse. Now, 
verse 18 in context follows verse 17. I know that sounds very rudimentary, but it is very important. Jesus' next statement has been the source of much confusion in church history. He makes a statement. Now, first off, he commends Peter because Peter has had this truth revealed to him by God. Revelation has come at the initiation of the Father. And he makes the statement, and, which means, that's in the text. What is coming next is logically connected to what has preceded it. You are Peter. He's getting ready to say that statement, but he says, you had this revealed to you by the Father, and you are Peter, Greek nominative case. It's a case of address, nominative. You are Petros, okay? You are, and it's a Greek word that means rock. You are rock. It's a nickname that he's given to Simon Barjona. You are the rock. And on this rock, Jesus changes tenses. I'm getting very technical here because it's important that you follow this. He says, Petria. He shifts it to a feminine, and the near demonstrative pronoun is put right in front of it. Okay? This rock. Now, if Jesus is still referring to Peter, why would he have changed the gender, changed the case altogether away from Petros? You see, many people believe that in order to be a part of the church, you have to hold Peter up as the rock and the foundation of your church as as though he's the first pope. And that the only true church that exists is the church that extends out from Peter as the Pope with a, su- a succession of popes that follow. And this has been an ongoing debate for hundreds, thousands of years now. If that is what Jesus is saying, then he is saying it in the most unusual and bizarre form. He says, you are Peter, you are the rock. And on this, and he changes the gender, on this girly rock, so to speak, I will build my church. You might be tempted to think that Peter is being insulted by Jesus at this point in time. You're a little girl, Peter. I'm going to build the church on you. But that's not what Christ is saying. He's referencing something else. He's got to be identifying some other element. Now, if you look in the context of what has just happened, Peter has confessed that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, you're a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Given the context of what we have before us, he's either referring to Peter, but if he's referring to Peter, he just insulted Peter, which means he's probably not referring to Peter. Because if he's teasing with Peter, and he's calling Peter a little girly man, Nobody's laughing. At least we don't see that anywhere in the text. And I'll give you one other example. Just flip with me to 1 Peter for a second. I want to show you something in 1 Peter chapter 2. If Jesus' point was to simultaneously insult Peter and tell everyone in the whole world that the true church was going to be built on Peter, then why doesn't Peter say that? You'll notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter quotes scripture in verse 6. It stands written in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And our friends in the Roman Catholic Church have always identified this as Peter. 
It's both Peter and Jesus, Peter being the incarnation of Jesus, the vicar of Christ on the earth. Peter's writing 1 Peter, which means if Peter's point is then to go on and say, now that means both Jesus and me, so believe in me like you believe in Jesus, he doesn't say that. Peter's next statement is, Behold, I am laying in Zion, he says, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen a precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, who is he talking about there? Is he talking about himself? Is Peter talking about Peter? Because if you look back previously in the chapter, verse 4, as you come to him, he doesn't say as you come to me, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, look at this, through Jesus Christ. The whole chapter is pointing to Jesus. Peter pointing to Jesus, not to himself. And in this chapter, he says everyone who believes in Jesus, the honor is for those of you who believe. If you believe in Jesus, you yourself become like a stone, like a rock, like a brick, to use a modern day uh, illustration that is put into this house that is being built for the Lord. They didn't have bricks in the sense that we have bricks today. They used rocks to build their houses back in the day. And so what Peter is saying is, when you place your faith in Christ, you become yourself a Petros, a rock. Which means when we look back at Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says to Peter, you are Petros, you are a rock, Jesus is celebrating the fact that Peter has come to faith in him, but he doesn't say that the church is going to be built on Peter when he says, and on this Petria, the near demonstrative pronoun, separating it from Peter, he's referring back to the previous verse. He's referring to Peter's confession of faith. So understand the full thrust of what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. How did Peter come to faith? God revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Based on that, Jesus then says, I will build my church. We just saw that God revealed truth to Peter, and now Jesus is saying, I am the one who's going to be building the church. If the church is built based upon having the truth of Christ revealed to you, and if Jesus is saying, I am the one building my church, and as the passage is saying that God is the one doing the revealing, we see here Jesus connecting himself to the Father, saying he is one with the Father through the confession of faith, which only comes about as a result of revelation from God. The church is being built. 
Now that's a whole lot of working with this text. I want us all just to kind of take a step back for a second and see something. To become a Christian, which incidentally results in you becoming a part of the church, which incidentally puts you in line to be a citizen of the coming kingdom one day, you must humble yourself before the Lord if you were to have that truth revealed to you. It comes at God's initiation. You cannot make it happen, but you can position yourself to allow it to happen. That is the foundation teaching of what constitutes the church. On this confession of faith, I will build my church. So look around the room. You see people sitting to your right. You see people sitting to your left. These people in this room, now listen to me, this is important. They are loved by God. And just like you, they postured themselves in such a way as to have God work a miracle in their heart. Just like you, they were chosen by the Father. Just like you, they were predestined from eternity past that Jesus Christ would love them and think of them as he was hanging on the cross. Every person in this room is loved by the Father. And you are bound to them in the same way as you are bound to Christ. Now, I just said that. That's not how I worded my manuscript. Let me back up and say that again. Being bound to Christ in the way that you are bound to Christ, you are also bound to them as they are bound to Christ. I say, what do you mean by that, Clay Camp? If you are on a cruise ship, rolling around in the Mediterranean, having a good time, you know, doing one of those uh, tours that they'll do with different cruises. And by a poor and unfortunate, sad turn of luck, you strike a rock or something like this and your ship begins to sink. You will find yourself in the ocean, looking, swimming, desperately trying to find a life raft to jump into. In that life raft, there will be other people. There will be a gathering of people who sought to escape from the depths of the ocean and you will automatically find yourself in their company. And as you all are clinging to the life raft, you're all together, you have this one thing in common, you're holding the life raft, and as you're holding to it, you yourselves are within community with each other. It's the same here in the church. But Jesus takes that understanding a step further. He makes the statement, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, I will build my community, I will build my assembly, my gathering of people, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus shifts into a very interesting word picture. The next verse, he makes the statement, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been let loose in heaven. We have this picture of gates and then right after that, the very next verse, we have this picture of keys. Keys that undoubtedly unlock doors or unlock gates. 
Jesus is saying that when it comes to the church, that is all of us in this room, who have had God work a supernatural miracle in our heart, revealing to us the truth of Christ, as we all gather together, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bleak it appears, no matter how dire the situation, hell will not beat us. Hell does not win. Jesus paints this really interesting word picture as he's talking to Peter. The gates open and shut. And he makes a statement, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, my understanding of hell is it's a place that you don't want to go to. It's a place that you want to escape by all means possible. And so, as Jesus is using this metaphor of gates and hell, he's saying that it's as though the gates, as they're swinging shut, that is to lock people in, that won't lock you in. And yet hell is the aggressor trying to drag people in and lock them in. Number one, you will not be trapped in hell. And then number two, you are given keys. Keys to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes this statement in verse 18. You're the church. I'm building the church. You're the church based upon your profession of faith in Christ. And you have a key. A key to the kingdom of of heaven. A church at its basic is referring to a gathering, a community of people. Kingdom is referring to a country that is governed by laws. The church is not the kingdom. And yet the church is given the keys to the kingdom. So now follow me all the way through here. Because Christ has done a supernatural work in your heart, because he has revealed the truth to you of who he is and you have correctly identified him as the coming king, you automatically find yourself in a fellowship, a company of other people. If you do not find yourself in a fellowship, a company of other people, if you do not find yourself a part of the church, then you should question whether or not you are really clinging to Christ. Clinging to Christ should put you into a church. In that church, follow me all the way through here, we're going somewhere and we're doing something because Christ has called us to go somewhere and to do something. Namely, to use this key that he has given us, the key of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scriptures talk about the fact that at the end of time, God's kingdom is going to come on this earth. There are no more dictators, there are no more despots. Simultaneously, there are no more elected representatives. It is a monarchy, and Jesus is the king. Now, before you start to get 
concerned about that, remember, it's Jesus. The best of all possible kings, the greatest, the holiest, the most perfect, the kindest, the fairest, the most just. Nobody can do it better than Jesus. I'm an American before I, as I, I'm becoming a Canadian, but, you know, Americans, we don't like kings. We, we, tend, to, we tend to prefer democratic rule. And it's interesting because in churches in the South, the text of what, what Jesus is saying is so, so plain as day. He is our king. And yet in a society that values autonomy and independence and throwing off all kinds of despotic rule and revolution and all of these sorts of things. You go into a church and you say, Jesus is your king. And, and I can say this because I grew up in American churches. The immediate response seems to be, well, yes, that's true, but he rules with us. We rule together, which that's true too. There is an element of that, but there's a tension. There is a very fine tension. We do rule at the end of time with Christ. But you need to remember that Jesus is the Christ, which means all rule and all authority that he might give to us will always be a derived authority coming from him, which means his will will always be supreme. So that when we approach this text, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, we cannot have it in our minds that we are still individuals, totally autonomous, totally free to do whatever we want. We are subjects, we are citizens of the king, and it is our destiny, it is our purpose, it has to be our calling that we will strive to live under his rule. Or else it's like this. I want to come and become a citizen of Canada, but I am having no intention and no desire of living under the laws and the government of this country. Why would you want to move to a country and become a part of that country if from the very get-go you had no intention of submitting to the authority of that country? We in this room are called first submit ourselves to our king. We are told, we are promised that hell will not trap us inside its gates. That the church will never be overcome by Satan. But following that promise comes a call to bind and loose to gather together and to separate. Following this call to submit to Jesus as King, we are told that our job in this life raft is to make critical decisions about reaching others who are floundering in the depths, to save those who can be saved. And those who would seek to overthrow the king, those who would seek to insist on anarchy, those who would reject Christ, we're called to not allow them to be in this life raft with us. That's the teaching that Jesus presents here. 
and say, well, what does that look like, this binding and loosing? I am going to reserve further comments on that particular verse until we come to Matthew chapter 18 because Jesus is going to really flesh it out for us in Matthew chapter 18. But for what we're talking about here today, one of the great problems all across the world with the way that Christians approach their commitment to church is that they fundamentally misunderstand the church is like a life raft. Our approach sometimes to our Christianity, especially here in North America, is to be one of a consumerist mentality. As though going to church is like going through the drive-through of a fast food restaurant. Are you in the mood for McDonald's? Are you in the mood for Wendy's? We want to drive through, we want to pay our money, we want it fast, we want it quick, we want it cheap, we want it easy. But the problem is that the church is never presented that way to us in Scripture. The church is presented to us as though it's a house built out of stones. Every stone resting on some other stone, every stone supporting some other stone. Another metaphor is that the church is described to us as a body. The whole body works together well when all the members of that body are present. Now, I don't know about you, but it would horrify me if I were to, say, be brushing my teeth one day and my thumb or my index finger would suddenly decide, I want to be a part of a different body and just jumped off my hand and walked away. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine one of the members of your body saying, I want to try someplace different? We approach church like it's a Walmart or a superstore or some other place of business. But if we approach church that way, we've misunderstood what Jesus is saying. We've misunderstood our King, and we have not submitted to his will. Now, please understand me. I'm not saying that there's never a time in which it is right to leave a church. I'm not saying that there is never a time in which you should reevaluate and consider your relationship to a particular church organization and maybe determine that you should go somewhere else. But what I am saying, and if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, one of the things we need to be convicted of and aware of is that too often we do approach church like it's a drive-through, like it's something that we just go when we feel like it, we get what we want, we pick and choose off the menu, and then we're on our way. There is no metaphor in the scriptures that describe the church in any way, shape, or form. We have a calling to bind and to loose. If Jesus is our king, that's our job. Which means one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, do we really know what that means to bind and loose? And are we being faithful to use the keys of the kingdom that Christ has given to us? In a couple of weeks' time, I am going to be with the kids building catapults. And for a select few, there will be a graduate course in trebuchet. <laughs> I, uh, I actually built a trebuchet when I was uh, in grade 12 in high school during algebra class. But... Um, <laughs> 
I actually, out of popsicle sticks and industrial strength Gorilla Glue, I, I built a trebuchet. I did it. And it was designed to launch a marble. Um, and uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I, please understand me. That was sinful, and you should pay attention to your teachers and do good in school. Um, don't, don't listen to the preacher up here and think, oh, yeah, like, let's build miniatures of medieval warfare when we're supposed to be learning algebra. But that's what I did. Um, and so I built this thing, this trebuchet, and I built it. I designed it to scale to launch marbles. And the school that I was in was kind of like the gym. It had these cinder block walls. And this thing was awesome. Based on weight and leverage, I launched this marble. I was just pointing at what I thought was a safe direction. And uh, I launched this marble with this trebuchet that I had rigged up. And it actually, like, chipped the concrete wall. It threw that marble with such, such force, which is awesome. Like, that is awesome. Now, I don't know that really the trebuchet was all that awesome, or maybe the construction was just that shoddy. But the fact remains that I actually chipped the cinder block off the cinder block wall. It was pretty cool. Now, here's the other thing. As soon as it hit that wall, it, like, ricocheted all over the room. I mean, just such force in this thing. I probably put too much weight relative to the, to the marble I was throwing. But what you need to understand, the basic principles of a trebuchet are this. You have a heavy weight, and it's attached to a, like, a, a, like, like a lever that's you know, on, a, on a pivot point. And as the weight pulls down, it pulls that lever up, and that lever is attached to a, to a sling, a rope of sorts. And as that weight slings down, the lever goes this way, and there's this rope attached to it that will then hurl the marble at great, at great speed. The point being this. The weight and the leverage is critical. You say, that's great. Have we completely forgotten about the text at hand? No. Listen to the text. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The church, you and me, this community, this gathering here, is not the kingdom. But based upon our use of the keys to the kingdom, we are leveraging things that are happening in heaven. We ourselves are not the originator and we are not the ultimate ones that bring people to salvation. We are not the ultimate ones that say to people, ultimately, you are not saved. But we are to act and operate in such a way that what we do here at Bridge Baptist Church is very similar to a heavy weight operating a lever. We leverage, we work in such a way as to influence people that they might posture themselves to fall into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the calling that is upon all of us. And it was talked about right here in Matthew chapter 16, the first time Jesus affirmed Peter, said, you're right, I am the Christ. It was the first time he mentioned the church, and it was the first time he mentioned the historical ramifications of what we have been charged with. Leveraging and working in such a way as to bring in the kingdom of heaven. When I become a citizen, if 
you know, Canada chooses to accept me, overlooks all of my terroristic deeds from my past. I will travel down to Vancouver. There will be a courtroom there. There will be a judge and an RCMP officer will present me and my wife along with, you know, various other individuals who are there. And he will say to the judge, judge, these men and women are coming to become citizens of Canada. And there's a little, there will be some back and forth to the ceremony. And ultimately, we'll take an oath. We will raise our right hands for those of us who are religiously inclined. Some of us will be putting our other hand on a Bible. And we will say, I swear or affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. If you accept Jesus Christ as your king, his will is the supreme will. And it's the most beautiful thing, the most compelling thing. It's the most grace-filled, most mercy-inducing thing that you could ever do is by honoring him, obeying him, and following him. Similar to this oath here, in which I, Shanti and I will have to swear to observe the laws of Canada, Jesus says of his people, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, we're all subjects of His Majesty the King. And the great calling on our life is to bring other people into the church that they might be heirs of the kingdom. And the great responsibility we have is to teach them to observe the laws and the commandments of our king, which means the great privilege that we have is to make sure we ourselves are observing and honoring the laws of our king. Let's make sure that we're doing that. Let's bow for a word of prayer.